Oh, holiday movies, you can be so warm and inviting when we're all sitting around the TV as a family, settling in with some popcorn to enjoy a classic story, like the ones that featured the Peanuts Kids, or the Rankin-Bass Claymation specials that seem to have been around every year since the invention of television. But where there is light, there must also be dark. And for all our darkly gothic needs, we turn to none other than producer Tim Burton to bring us a spooky twist on the concept of a family holiday movie. By the power of stop-motion animation, and fueled with an amazing musical score by Danny Elfman, this movie comes to life. Parts of the plot are tried and true. A loner in the holiday season seeking purpose, helping out Santa in his time of need, and finding the true meaning of Christmas. Of course, because this is Tim Burton, there's also kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, decapitation, hordes of wriggling insects, horrific imagery that can scar the minds of unprepared children, and creepy characters we strangely identify with despite our gut instincts to avoid them out of revulsion. So is this a Halloween movie or a Christmas movie? Why not both? But right now it's time to call up your ghost dog, stock up on deadly nightshade, and get ready to steal, I mean help out, another holiday, just before you wake up in a cold sweat from the nightmare before Christmas, next on Nostalgia Bomb. Welcome to Nostalgia Bomb. I am Stephen Blue, your host for this very special holiday episode, and joining me in this town we call home would be the king of our local cooperative pumpkin patch, Mr. Joe Perez. Hey, Joe. Well, hello! I am so happy to have you here. I am absolutely, totally, wonderfully hyped for this episode. I can tell, and as am I, I'm really excited. There are, there's just so much to talk about. Um, God, let's just go ahead and hop right into this. Absolutely. It just gives me chills listening to that. Yeah, that's something that's actually on my normal playlist rotation is the soundtrack to this movie. Like, it, it's something that gets played. I don't care what time of year it is. <laughs> so just, just for the uninitiated, all two of you, The Nightmare Before Christmas is a film that released in 1993 about one Jack Skellington, the king of Halloween. Uh, Jack runs a place called Halloween Town. It's kind of a personification of the holiday, and all the residents there spend all year gearing up for the event of Halloween. Uh, Jack finds himself becoming kind of bored by his constant success of throwing the scariest and most horrifying Halloweens uh, that, that have ever been known, and it's just not a challenge to him anymore, as he laments in his songs. He happens upon a magic gate that whisks him away to a Christmas town, and suddenly invigorated by all the new jolly things he sees, Jack decides to help Christmas this year, and hijinks ensue. Dude, I absolutely love that description of it because it's perfect. You're an immortal skeleton king, ruler of Halloween Town, the epitome of all things that is the awesomeness of Halloween, and you're bored, and you got to figure out something to do. So what? what's best to do? Co-op another holiday. Oh, yeah. The thing I love the most, that, again, they help another holiday. They think that they're doing this great and wonderful service, and it's so invading. They're so happy to do it, even though they're utterly ruining it, because as the personifications of Halloween, they're used to being scary and terrifying, uh, you know, with maybe a bit of candy here and there, but 
the the joy of Christmas is just not something that they're used to. They find joy in what they do. Uh, again, you know, that's our job. We're not mean in our town of Halloween. They're not malevolent people. It's just their their nature is to be scary. Well, it's it's a little bit even more beyond that. At least to me, the way that I'm looking at it is they're innocent in so much as yes, they're scary monsters, but they're doing a job, and they're doing this job because it brings joy to people. And it's not that they want to just terrify kids and families it's because during that time of year that's what kids and people want they want to be scared they want that that brings them joy so what they see here is an opportunity to take another holiday that is intended to bring you know children joy and pitch in and they're thinking well we bring joy you know we can do this for you too we can give you a break hey maybe next time you can give us a break it'll be fine nothing will go wrong but it's it's an act of just innocence they want to continue to bring joy and if you look at it like look at look at as soon as halloween ends what's the first thing that happens they have a big town meeting and the mayor declares that there is only 365 days before the next halloween we gotta get to work now no it's only 364 <laughs> oh god <laughs> absolutely but that that gives you the mindset of these characters it's not malice it's pure innocent joy they just want to bring happiness they just aren't programmed to do it any other way. Now, did you ever have the talks with any of your friends uh, back in the day of what would happen if, say, you know, because the Easter Bunny makes an appearance, what if the Easter Bunny co-opted, say, Halloween? What would his Halloween be like? Dude, all I know is that there would be giant carved eggs, and that would be really messy. <laughs> they, they, they paint the paint eggs like pumpkins and uh, something like that? Either that or they just start hacking away at him trying to put the faces in and just, you know, explodes everywhere. <laughs> uh, okay, so first things first. Again, if you are one of the two people who has not seen this or at least heard of this, the whole thing is done in stop motion. Gives the film an incredibly unique look, which admittedly I find personally at times can be a little off-putting only because, well, Jack comes off as incredibly spindly. I, I sometimes wonder how his limbs just don't snap or fly off when he makes grand gestures. Uh, the, the vampires, for instance, that are going through the town, they have, for the most part, you know, larger, rounded bodies. I find their expressions very, very difficult to observe just because of the way their characters' designs are. It does give it a very unique style, and I'm certainly thankful for that and i wouldn't say it's a downside just sometimes it's a little a little wacky to me well and and that's part of the vision of this whole thing right like you're, you're looking at the people who had an influence in writing and creating this and they generally have a slightly off-putting very weird view of the world and it also fits really well with the style of storytelling that is done here, right? So look at the story. You have these these band of misfits, which I love that I love that word <laughs> misfits. Uh, so you have this band of misfits that are trying to do good, but they're just a little bit off. And that is in every single character design. Look at look at the triplets, right? L look at that trio, and they're almost normal, almost. But every single one of them has something off about them, whether it's the slightly psychotic stare, the weird nose and in, in sort of scraggly hair and the shark-like smile, the devil the horns. And the, oh, yes, absolutely. But if you look at them, they're almost normal. And that's all of these characters. All of them are almost normal. Look at the mayor, the two-faced mayor. It, it's I love the two-faced politician. <laughs> Oh, ab which it's is so absolutely perfect. perfect. 
but they're all slightly off versions of what can be considered or passed for normal. And it, it fits. There's just something a little bit off about each of them. Yes, some are a little more overt than others. I mean, a giant wolfman in a flannel lumberjack shirt is going to be a little <laughs> bit weird in any crowd. But that theme is something that, that is just carries through the entire movie, and it fits so well. And even those, Santa, those, those even tiny Santa's hands. off. Oh, God, the super tiny hands freak me out. No, no, and you're right. Even Santa, well, even the Easter Bunny, who I guess appears the most, um, honestly, he's like a peep. He's like a giant oh, yeah. bunny peep. He's probably got the, I guess what I would call the most simultaneously solid, but also uh, proportional. He, he doesn't have like really long arms or a really tiny head. He actually looks relatively proportional, but there is still something off about him. Oh, absolutely. And, and again, that's just the key thing about this is even though it's supposed to be a children's st- story in so many, you know, so much capacity, you feel just a little bit unsettled before anything overt happens, like torture and dismemberment, before kidnapping, before, like, you're not quite sure how they got a rabbit into that bag. Before anything weird like that happens, there's just something that just kind of doesn't let you ease up. And it's not so much that it's a horror movie sort of unease. It's just the, what am I missing? Well, the the, the town is off. Uh, gates are asymmetrical. The, the the doctor's tower is at this weird slant. Jack's house, I'm not sure how he gets to the upper level because the, the, the it doesn't look like a stairwell should even be able he to exist. He just grows exist. a hill, man. He exactly. just grows a hill. It must be because that's all it can actually be. Getting, uh, and that's, again, part of the aesthetic of the whole thing. But that said, animation versus uh, stop motion versus nowadays we look at CGI um, is is this I guess uh, a gimmick? We we don't see many stop motion films. Uh, I, I compiled a small list of the last stop motion films that I could recall: uh, Chicken Run, Two Thousand, Corpse Bride, Ought Five, Coraline, and Fantastic Mr. Fox, both Ought Nine, and Box Trolls in twenty fourteen. I mean, I know that there's a couple more here and there, don't but forget, those don't forget Paranorman, which is also right in the vein of this movie as well. Good point, good point. Um, and I think uh, the, the new Frankenweenie was as well. Yes, uh, and, and Wallace and Gromit, but even the most recent Wallace and Gromit was Ought 8. So, skipping a few, stop motion doesn't get done very often. It's not like we have some kind of annual installment. So, ha- has stop motion kind of become a gimmick where it that itself becomes the selling point of a movie? See, and, and here's where I kind of... I'm torn, right? Because I can understand why some people would assume that it's a gimmick. But there's such an art form involved in stop motion that I'm really reticent to ever categorize it as such. And we were talking about this a little bit earlier before the show started where you have this shift in animation where everything went from hand drawing everything and layering the cells and how much was involved in each single image. And over time that's evolved into a a much quicker format with digital production and things like that in so much as that's, it's, it's the same thing as saying stop motion eventually gave way to CGI because it wound up being essentially easier. That said, I would rather watch a stop motion film for the artistry involved. You have to imagine every single frame is perfectly maneuvered. Every character, the faces manipulated, all of the different skill that has to go into creating each and every one of those mannequins from the armatures all the way up to the final production, plus the artistry involved in filming it. 
I don't think it's a gimmick. I think it is truly an art form. And I think that the reason we don't see so much of it is because the time dedication necessary to it. The average length of an, of a stop motion film, even in, with recent advances in technology, still hovers just barely over an hour usually because it takes so long to create and film. Oh, and even this film was only an hour and a quarter. Only an hour and a quarter. Corpse Bride, hour and a quarter. Frank and Weenie, hour 20, I want to say. Box Trolls, barely over uh, barely over an hour. And that's okay because they tell it, it that sort of natural confinement of time forces them to tell better stories or to insert better punctuated songs or to do better with what they're given because they have that limit. They can't just make a three-hour epic. Well, they could, but it's going to take them years. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I imagine I that they're also. I imagine they're also very reticent to uh, film something they know they're not going to use. So they make sure that everything that needs to be there is there. They don't want to cut anything. So because that, I can only imagine the, the incredible amount of wasted time if somebody says this scene needs to go. And especially if it, if it, it would be one thing if it wasn't feeding the plot at all is another if they say you know the studio wants us to cut five minutes from the film so that the theaters will be happy. I. I can only imagine how frustrating that would be. But your opinion is that it kind of has the same allure as, say, uh, a Jackie Chan film in that it's him doing all of the stunts or Muppets that you know that there are people manipulating these things uh, underneath and that um, that itself lends a particular artistry. Absolutely. I, I, I was curious when I first started watching this as... Uh, especially when I started watching all the behind the scenes. You mentioned uh, animation, especially back in the hand-drawn days, and there could be all kinds of issues and errors and whatnot. I always thought to myself that you could probably do a complete pan around since the majority of these sets have to be completely assembled, and Jack's basically just standing there, uh, you know, waiting for you to uh, change out his head, move his hands up, you know, uh, adjust the eyebrows, or if he's throwing an object, you could set up you know, three or four cameras and just go with whichever one you thought was best. I realize it doesn't really work quite that way, but you at least have the option to do something like that. Some and some of the some of these stop motion films have actually done that. Uh, movies like Coraline and Paranorman have actually made use of that, uh, where they've swung a physical camera around to get different angles of, of the same type of shot, uh, in almost like a Matrix style parody. Uh, and you can you can actually see that. The problem with uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas is, even though they had a lot of sets to do, they had a very limited amount of space uh, as far as setup plus having all of the personnel they needed in that stage. Uh, it wasn't like a grand production. And, that, and that's the other thing that is sort of a limitation with these these things as well, is you have a limited amount of studio space with which to work. And you have to move the sets in and out as necessary. Uh, they don't necessarily stay there. They're not all laid out like a, a blockbuster film. Uh, and you have to manipulate that. And sometimes that gives you artificial restrictions on what you can set up for cameras. Uh, it's gotten better, especially between 1993 and now, uh, where technology has advanced to the point where cameras are lighter, uh, rigging is sturdier and a lot more lightweight and easier to maneuver. So we can see more of that now versus than we could then. And I'm certain that that's something they would have thought about back then, but I don't think it's something they could have physically done back in the 90s. Hmm. I mean, certainly an interesting point. I'm imagining... I'm imagining Jack with a GoPro now. I would totally be down for watching Jack do his skeleton run. Oh, I'm just that. 
Uh, I, I love these conversations we have because I think of all these things I, I'd never even considered before. I, I thought I was going gangbusters with my show notes, and now we're doing even more beyond that. But, okay, getting away from the technical aspects, let's talk about the movie itself. And uh, I, you cannot talk about this film without talking about the music. And Danny Elfman did such a magnificent job on this film. I, I And you mentioned that you know, this is on your standard playlist. I... I actually went for a, a couple uh, bits from Nightmare Revisited, which we'll talk about a bit later, but the songs are just so endearing. Well, they're not only just endearing, they're really, they're flat out catchy, let's just call it like it is. The the way that the music is punctuated, the way that the tempo is done, everything about them is very inviting, and it's something that is not just something you could see in a movie. It's something that you could hear on the radio. It's something that is not out of place on a TV show. It's a universal quality to the songs. And what I love about them, not only are they fantastic, but the way they're placed throughout the movie is they're not just there for the sake of being there. They're punctuations. And I've had discussions about this with people in the past, uh, coming from a musical background and growing up on musicals and plays and things like that. There's a very fine line between doing something for the sake of doing it, like singing that you're making bacon in the morning versus <laughs> a song about your feelings that just bleeds in directly from the dialogue and then goes right into the next set of dialogue seamlessly. And you have Danny Elfman who does this perfectly. These songs have perfect beginnings and ends. They're absolutely phenomenally written. The music is great. It, everything about them is is that typical Danny Elfman perfection. Danny Elfman perfection. And and funny enough, I started looking at uh, a lot more of his uh, discography and what he's done. He's in pretty much every Tim Burton project that you can mm -hmm. name. Um, I love the fact that he did the March of the Dead for Army of Darkness. Uh, he was uh, did the Sam Raimi Spider-Man 1 and 2, Hellboy 2 with... Um, uh, uh, get, dang it. Guillermo del Toro. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, and most recently, I, I don't know how I missed this. Uh, he did uh, Avengers Age of Ultron as well, the, the soundtrack for that. He is literally that composer that if you know somebody who knows somebody who needs a score done, done. Get Danny Elfman. And he's, he's very varied, and the variety that he provides is crazy. Like, he's just... And I'm fanboying a little bit, but he's just crazy talented and everything from video game scores. Mm -hmm. I mean, to Simpsons, to movies of epic quality, like he just runs the gamut and everything is perfectly placed and nothing feels out of place. I'm glad you feel that way because there are, I don't know, I feel like the Oogie Boogie scene toward the end goes on, um... Uh, a bit long. I, I don't know what it is. I, I, I don't find... Uh, I don't find Oogie Boogie to be a particularly um, diabolical villain. It's... Okay. Uh, so we'll go over these small issues that I have with the film because um, I'm an adult now and as much as I fanboyed about this film uh, as a child, I am now able to look at it with a critical eye, and since you are going so hyped for this, I want to let you uh, dissuade me from my issues. I wish they talked a little bit more about Sally's uh, apparent portenting ability. 
that she seems to be the only one that has any idea what's really going on, that this isn't a good idea, and then when she's doing the the, the uh, flower petal plucking, the the flower in her hands transforms into a Christmas tree, which is great, and then it combusts, and oh, that's terrible, but why is that happening? I, I appreciate that she seems to be the sensible one. Uh, it is certain choices like that seem to come a bit out of left field, and other than giving her a reason to be the person that's naysaying, it, it, it didn't seem to fit well with the rest of the movie. So here's my counterpoint to that. Uh, so one of the one of the pervasive themes from throughout the entirety of this movie is this undercurrent of innocence, right? Mm-hmm. Sally is the personification of that. She is the child. She is the doll. She is the youngest, so to speak, despite the devil children running around. She is the youngest in the mentality. And with that innocence comes a certain amount of clarity because she she's the outcast right so to speak she doesn't have a place she doesn't have a part she's a thing she's a possession at this point so she's looking through the world through different eyes through an innocence not tainted by having that same connection to the job that jack does or the mayor or anybody else in that town because what does she really contribute uh, and the thing is, she wants to. She okay. She does num- okay. Number one, she is in the opening scene, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it's the wind blowing through your hair. She is there. I'm glad she's there because otherwise, she really would come even more out of left field. Um, but yeah, the the doctor seems to do the doll situation with her. You know, wanting to keep her locked up. You know, almost like a my precious kind of thing. And, and no, she doesn't seem to really interact with anyone. She's even. I hate to call it stalking, but she is certainly admiring Jack from afar. The only people she talks to, uh, beside the doctor and Jack, I think she very briefly talks to uh, uh, the musical trio. Yes. So, yeah, it's like nobody else knows what to do with her. Well, and that's the thing. She's the outsider looking in, and because she's that outsider looking in, she can see things that others can't. The others are essentially too close to the situation, too involved to see that this is a bad idea. Whereas Sally's sitting there, she's like, this is this is going to blow up in our faces because she's not directly involved. She's outside looking in, seeing what's happening. That's where it comes from. It's not a you know direct. Oh, she has magic powers. At least not to me. It's a metaphor, and that's essentially what it is. It's a metaphor for you have to be removed from a situation sometimes before you can actually see what's going on. If sometimes was, you can't if, see the forest for the trees. If it was going to be a metaphor, seeing it in a mirror or something like that might have worked. Uh, a bit more. That's a little 1950s for our. For our uh, let's be honest. Fine, mirror, mirror fine. on the wall. Come on. Oh, I'm uh, okay. That was what came to mind immediately. <laughs> Moving on. Um, making Oogie Boogie a gambler. Um, I mean, I, I suppose it works. I again kind of came out of nowhere. Didn't quite see how it fit into anything, but neat little character trait. I wish they would decide if Oogie was scared of Jack or not, because there seems to be this whole, um, you know, yay, the Pumpkin King's dead, I don't have to be afraid anymore. Oh, Jack, it's you, arg, my plan is foiled, but no, I will attempt to rebel, even though I'm terrified of you. Uh, There just doesn't seem to be a lot of consistency there. Oogie is not necessarily a big bad evil. He's a vice, and that's where the gambling comes in. Look at it. He Everything in his lair is a vice. Everything that the gambling is probably one of the most, especially at the time, uh, was considered one of the biggest vices that somebody could have. And 
Is, is this the, punctuated by the fact that there is an actual vice in there that like yes that is that is that is a beat it over the 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 head with a mallet metaphor there, but mm-hmm. it's it, but if you look at it who who who's that he works with he works with the trio yeah lock shock and barrel yeah and those are kids they're being taken in and they're basically brought in by this vice it, it's it, I know I'm probably being like overly. I don't want to say explaining about it or or trying to over fanboy on it, but it's one of those things where if you take a step back and look at it, he's not evil. He's just temptation. He's literally that thing that is the worst thing to happen to innocence. Temptation. I I would almost contend that because of the whole Santa Claus situation. If mm-hmm. he just sat back, I, I would totally agree with you on this one. And again, much as I enjoy this film, this is something that I think you and I are just going to sit there. He sure. is clearly evil because the the kids, even if they're giving in to Vice, give Santa Claus over to him. And he's not tempting Santa Claus. He's getting ready to eat him. He, he never actually really does the whole eating thing. He's and- getting ready to toss him into a blender. <laughs> and, and there are several allusions at, you know, during his song and during his dialogue. We could, uh, we could also go that it would be a metaphor for you know falling into the vice. You get consumed by it. A lot gluttony or... No, just like... I suppose think, is an obsession. Think it, it can be, but think about it as, as literally being consumed by your vice. I think that's a bit of a stretch. It could be, but I'm going to stick by it. Oh, that's, that's how it's going to be. It's, it's going to be me making counterpoints and you just sticking with it, despite my superior argument. You can say it's superior, <laughs> but it might be better for us to move on. Okay, so why, why does this film have such a cult following? Part of it has to do with the time that it was released. Uh, in the 90s, particularly the early 90s, there was a really big, uh, almost goth movement happening. Uh, the rise of Hot Topic uh, was a thing. You're talking about all of these musicians and this emo culture that was really starting to take root more than it really had in the 80s. It started at the end of the 80s, moved into the 90s. And so a lot of teenagers, uh, not just younger kids, but a lot of teenagers kind of latched onto it. And that made it kind of a cultural phenomenon for its particular time. Same with most of Tim Burton's projects that Mm -hmm. he was involved with. It had that dark undertones. It had these weird metaphors. It had these amazing stories that people could imprint themselves upon. And I think that's a big thing here. There's a lot of blank space in these films. And Corpse Bride, uh, talking about Nightmare Before Christmas, Coraline. There's all these blank spaces that give the viewer an opportunity to imprint themselves into the story or onto these characters or into this world, even though it's only for just barely over an hour. And I think that had a lot to do with why it had such a cult following back then, why it was so popular and why it still continues to be so popular to this day. Okay. Is that why you like it? That is part of the reason why. Uh, The other part of the reason why is I really appreciate, again, the artistry of it. I'm a miniature guy. I'm one of those people that sculpts and paints minis for fun. So when I look at stuff like this, this is part of the reason I got into that hobby, that trade, is because, and this is going to be kind of a weird sort of spoiler, (laughs) fun fun fact about me. My godfather actually worked in special effects in Hollywood for a number of years, and he worked on stop motion films. Go figure. Uh, so when he would come back home for the holidays, we would talk about it and he would show me how, you know, this is how you would sculpt this type of movement. This is how you would put folds into fabric. Here's how you would create the armature. Here's what type of materials you would use. That kind of really spun that up for me. So anytime there's a stop motion or a stop motion animated film, 
I latch onto it because for me, the art of it is there and that There's art of it is a big deal. Yeah. Personal investment. There is. And the songs are pretty damn catchy, let's be honest. Well, there there are tons of films for me that have, you know, that one moment where you just go, oh, and again, especially seeing this uh, you know, as a young child. The thing that always resonated the most with me is Jack's revelation, where, again, he's trying so hard to do something nice, to do something different, to give a, you know, a new spin on Christmas, even though nobody likes it because it's not Christmassy enough. I love when he's sitting there in the graveyard lamenting himself, and you wonder, you know, how is he going to recover from this? And he pulls himself out of it, saying, you know, maybe I did this wrong, maybe, you know, uh, I never intended all this madness, but I've given them something to talk about, and this has been such an amazing creative process for me. I've got all these ideas for next year, and it's always easy for your parents or your teachers to tell you something like, you're going to learn more from your mistakes than you are uh, from your successes. This is one of those times where I felt like I really saw that in action. Because I, whenever I make a mistake, I do feel awful like Jack did. But I'd always had trouble digging myself out of it until he mentions that. I don't know why it re resonates with me the way it does. But when he pulls himself up and says, I've, you know, all these great ideas for next year... It, it really stuck with me, and uh, it, so, it resonates with me in a way that very that, that nothing else has, saying the exact same message. And I wish I could tell you why that is, if it is the Danny Elfman score, or if it is the artistry of stop motion, or if it's you know the fact that it's coming from Prince Humperdinck, that's, that still blows my mind, that, it, that it's um, uh, Chris Sarandon doing the voice for Jack. You, you hit a very important point there, I think, as well. And we talk about, or at least I talked about, that one of the themes here is that it's innocence, right? Mm -hmm. Coraline, Nightmare Before Christmas. Edward Scissorhands. Edward Scissorhands. It's all these stories of innocence and sort of being thrown into a world that you don't quite understand. And nobody does that quite as well as any Tim Burton production, basically. And here is a really good point. All of these characters... Jack Skellington, Coraline, they pull themselves up. They make their own realizations. And it's very important because it goes against a trope that runs rampant in Hollywood for the last 50 years and that there's always a hero or heroine to save the day. Very few movies allow that character to sort of save themselves, so to speak. And this is one of those moments especially to see a, a wash in a sea of movies of action movies where you have nothing but explosions and heroes, which the nineties were ripe with. Mm -hmm. This is something that kids of our generation, especially back then uh, younger and slightly older as well could latch onto because it's, we have those moments of self doubt. Every kid has them. Every adult, has, everybody has them. It's just, it's a thing that happens. And you see a character who's charismatic, who's beloved, make these mistakes and feel so down, but then pull himself or themselves back up out of this hole and carry on. They didn't need input from somebody else. They didn't need an outside influence. They found it deeper than themselves. It gives you almost like a feeling of hope, I want to say, because it definitely was something that resonated with me when I was a kid as well. Oh, with, with Jack, it, I think one of the things that also resonates is it's a very in-character thing. They, 
his journey, even though it is during the form of that song, even though the the lament and the redemption and you know have to set things right, even though that all happens in the span of about three minutes, it's still it's still done so beautifully. He doesn't have to, like, like we said earlier, it doesn't have to be like a mirror, mirror on the wall moment. Please show me what I've done wrong. It, it all happens. It's organic. It. It's, yes, it's exactly. very organic. Thank you. I was, uh, you have managed to put in one word when I was trying to articulate in my <laughs> paragraph. Uh, getting on that though, I know we, we, we mentioned this a bit as we were uh, going over show notes. If there's one point I did disagree with, it's that, Sally doesn't seem to really, uh, her resolution, you know, being the doctor's doll, she doesn't have that kind of, I'm not even sure I want him, I want her to tell him off. I want there to be a bit more resolution between them. The doctor just kind of goes off, does his own thing, makes a, a new uh, project, and it's like they don't even look at each other anymore. There's, there's no, uh, it's not even that there needs to be tension, there's just no afterthought. It's like, oh, you know, she ran away. Oh, I'm done with that. Oh, I run away. I'm not going to feel any any remorse whatsoever to, uh, you know, for running away from my creator. Uh, I understand well, that there's, I understand that there is a <laughs> lot of tension between them. I just felt like their storyline seemed to kind of putter out. And I'm kind of okay with that because you got to consider in their interactions, you have her poisoning him so he'll fall asleep so she can leave. We don't know how many times poisoning that's him to fall asleep. Oh yes. god. She literally poisons him. <laughs> Their relationship is not exactly what I would call healthy. So I'm okay with the resolution in so much as her subversiveness, so to speak, allowed her to escape a situation she didn't want to be in and did it without having an outright confrontation. She didn't have to murder him. She didn't have to have this big mm-hmm. battle on the top of the mountain. Eventually he just said, She's not worth my time trying to keep her locked up. I'm just going to let her go and replace her. And that's fine. And and to me, that's okay because that's what she wanted all along. So she got what she wanted. She wasn't beholden to him. She it, wasn't locked away. It just away. felt unfulfilling to it, me. I can understand that. But you know what? Again, it's it fits. It fits with that whole emergence of innocence as far as I'm concerned. And I understand that you, you have every right to feel differently about it. <laughs> But it's one of those things where it, it just kind of fits with that whole story because if you look at it outside of the kidnapping of Sandy Claus, there isn't a whole lot of outright confrontation in this movie. And that is something that I think is absolutely necessary to maintain the tone. So the most important question, do you watch this on Christmas or Halloween? Would you be mad at me if I told you I watch it at least once a month? Um... Not mad, certainly. Possibly a bit concerned, because I think even my f- most favorite movies only get maybe the twice a year uh, uh, journey. So um, I, again, I can dig it. Just uh, that <laughs> no, makes it. I, well, I it's suppose a times a year thing. It really is. I like, suppose that does kind of make it an Easter film and a Thanksgiving film, <laughs> and yeah, pretty much an, an everything film. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things that I will watch it both holidays. I will watch it on Halloween. I will watch it on um, you know Christmas. Uh, I've worked it into my normal Christmas rotation with the family as well. Uh, So it's one of those things that I think fits both quite well. I traditionally watch it as a Halloween uh, movie primarily because I don't think Halloween gets nearly enough love, especially from the uh, uh, not 
terrifying genre, if that makes sense. Yeah, not a little more wholesome, less horror. <laughs> okay, um, just to get this out of my system, I want to set the record straight really quick. I have nothing against Tim Burton, but for the love of God, all the fans, please. Burton co-produced the film it started as a poem. It was the story itself was written by Michael McDowell. Um, you know, the screenplay uh, adapted to screenplay by uh, Caroline Thompson and. Henry Selleck was the director. I don't have anything against Burton, but please, these people deserve proper credit. And yes, we know it's easy to see that this is the man that gave us Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands. I know. Everyone knows. You don't have to keep pointing it out. These other people uh, were involved in those, too. You know, you know exactly what I'm trying to say, so... Uh, there. We now thank Tim Burton. We thank Tim Burton for setting up the atmosphere of the world, but please don't forget everybody else that made it come to life and make it happen. There again, you have managed to succinctly say what I managed to get an entire paragraph for. <laughs> so, not quite twenty-five years on, I we have ranted and raved and said how much we love this film. Dutter bomb. I, I think it's pretty easy to say. So, I still think it holds up. I think it's still the bomb. Absolutely, completely agree with you on that one. Uh, you can find it all kinds of places. I, I was stunned to see just the enormous list we have. Uh, it was most recently released to 3D Blu-ray, available in stores, Amazon Video, iTunes, uh, buy it on YouTube, like freaking everywhere that you can find this film. Uh, we mentioned earlier uh, there was this amazing uh, redo of the soundtrack called Nightmare Revisited. I highly recommend that. Uh, Marilyn Manson does the uh, This Is Halloween song. Uh, Flyleaf does um, the, the Christmas Town song, uh, you know, uh, What's This? Korn does uh, Kidnap the Sandy Claws, and there's another dozen and a half uh, various tracks and whatnot. Amazing. It's worth picking up, folks. Uh, those who like playing video games, uh, they did have a quasi-sequel in, uh, once it was a PS2 game, Oogie Boogie's Revenge, if you want to try and find that. But Halloween Town and Jack Skellington make appearances in Kingdom Hearts, and I'm a big fan of that. If you find the DVDs uh, and you're going with that, um, if there is one film, I would say you need to watch the behind-the-scenes technical jargon, it's Star Wars. If there were two, it would be Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. But if there were three... It would certainly be this one, watching what they do with stop motion, posing and all the different, uh, they have something like, you know, over a hundred Jack Skellington heads going through all the different expressions and whatnot. It is absolutely amazing watching these guys work. And, and I'm, I'm sure that uh, goes particularly to your heart, Joe, since you obviously, uh, as you said, had somebody in the business. Yeah, it's it's absolutely worth watching. It's one of those things where even if you're not in love with the creation aspect like I am as far as the, the figures go, there's a lot of interesting stuff as far as setting up scenes, uh, commentary as well. It's worth watching when you have some time, especially the movie's only barely over an hour. You got extra time to kill. Go for it. And that said, we have run out of our runtime, so why don't you uh, start taking us out of here? If you would like to give us feedback or make suggestions for future shows, shoot us an email at show at nostalgiabomb.co. We are also on Facebook and Twitter, too, if you prefer the more direct approach. Uh, you can find us on our website at nostalgiabomb.co, and we have a Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash nostalgiabombcast, as well as Twitter handle at nostalgiabmb. And you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Overcast, and pretty much everywhere that podcasts are found. 
And Be sure thank- to tell us we're awesome. <laughs> and thank you for pointing out that I need to uh, kind of redact some of these show notes because they get very, very repetitive. So uh, another huge thanks, as always, to Adam Tanner for his wonderful contributions and vocal talents to the introductions. Hey, everybody, season two will be coming up starting on January 11th. So stay tuned, and we will see you next episode. Thanks again to Joe. Until next time. 